0: I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll be looking today at verses 28 through 36, and as you turn there just to echo uh, something that Pastor Jacob was praying for, uh, as you know, we partner with Mark and Parker Phillips and Axis Ministries and uh, Nehemiah Niger, and if you've been watching the news this week, you know that there's been a, a military coup In Nehemiah Niger, where uh, there have been military leaders who've overthrown the president of the country, and that has created a lot of instability. And so in communicating with Mark this week, he did ask, we pray. They are safe. But uh, specifically, if you would pray, uh, there is a team there right now from Harmony Hills Baptist Church in Texas. Uh, That team has been led by a pastor and is a team of students And they have shut the airport down, and as you can imagine, those parents are very anxious about their children not being able to come home. They are safe. Uh, They're actually in a compound there, and it's guarded, and they're safe. But if you would pray uh, that God would work and that there would be peace in that situation, uh, that those students could come home to their families. Uh, As parents, we know that that would be a very hard situation to be in on this side of the ocean. And pray for the Phillips that God would use this instability, to create gospel opportunity. As we look now to Luke chapter 9, we come back to uh, where we left off. And if you were with us in our study of God's Word last week and in recent weeks, you know that we've come to a point where uh, Luke has continued to put before us this question of who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus has asked this question to the disciples themselves. Peter has made uh, that great confession that Jesus is the Christ, which we read earlier. And now Jesus has foretold uh, the events that are coming, that he will be arrested, that he will be crucified, and that he will be raised from the dead. And as much as this is something we understand this side of eternity, this side of the gospel, uh, where we are in God's word, where we we have the, the fullness of God's word preached to us, we know what already has happened. We know what is to come, what is not yet. We have to understand that, that we are reading about events that take place in a time where the disciples are receiving this with a different expectation. They are expecting Jesus as the Messiah to reign there and now, for the kingdom to come now. And so when Jesus starts talking about a death and and a resurrection, this is not what they were expecting of the Messiah. And that is why you have disciples like Peter so emphatically saying that that shouldn't be the case. And that's why you have Jesus responding to Peter and the others to help them understand, well, that is the case, and what this will require of you is that you deny yourself, that, that, that you lay down your life, because Jesus says of himself, he is about to lay his life down for the disciples. And in saying these things, he communicates the, the gravity of the gospel call for all of us today, of what it means to truly follow Jesus. That is not a casual call. This is not some auxiliary pursuit in our life. The, the question before us As we come to God's word today is the question before us as we come to God's word every day. Is Jesus worthy of our lives? Are we willing to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, to lay down ourselves in order to live for him? Now, that is the call that he has put before the disciples, the call he put before us. And where we left off in Luke 9, you may remember, was with verse 27, where after extending this call to the disciples, Jesus says, but truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And there have been multiple and are multiple interpretations of this. I I believe that what Jesus puts forward here is very clearly seen in the verse that follows, (laughs) that he says there's some standing here, I believe he's referring here to Peter, John, and James, who are now going to see The kingdom, as they see the events of the transfiguration that we read about now. And so we're going to pick back up in our study today in verse 28 and out of reverence for God's word. If you're able to, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for the word of God. We we can't be reminded often enough, friends, that this is the holy word of God. This is the truth he has put before us. And this is what the truth says. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. If you would pray with me. Father, I do ask that you would plant the truth of your word in our hearts today, and that this truth would bear fruit, that we would see growth in our life. And so, where our faith is weak today. We ask that you would grow it. Where we need to see your mercy and your grace and your love in our lives, Lord, help us to see it. Lord, help us to walk by faith and to trust you today as we look to your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the question before us today is, is Jesus worth it? (laughs) And we've seen very clearly this call that Jesus makes that we're to deny ourselves and die ourselves and follow him. The practical question for us is, is he worth it? Because if he's not worth it, if you don't see him as being worthy of this, you're not going to do it. And I'm not going to do it. And we live in a, in a day in an age where for so many in the world and at times so many in the church that, that we really don't have something in front of us that truly is worthy of us laying down our lives. Or at least we don't see it when it's there. I was reminded of this not long ago as I was looking back through some writings of Os Guinness. If you're familiar with Os Guinness, he's written over 30 books or so, written and edited 30 books. He's a He's a great thinker of the faith, a believer. Uh, he's from Britain. He lives in the States now. He, he lectures quite a bit on the faith apologetically. I had a chance uh, to have dinner with him about 15 years ago as he was lecturing on the campus of WKU and speaking to students and and challenging them to put their trust in Jesus. I remember a conversation that night over dinner, and as well, he we spoke about his lecture. And he'd written about it in his books. It was Essentially, what he has proposed is really that the ailment of our culture today along these lines. He says it this way, as modern people, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. Too much to live with and too little to live for. And it doesn't take long for you to look around and to, to see that and understand that, that, that we live in this day and age when When there is so much we live with, so much information, so much opportunity, so much at our disposal, so many advances, and yet at the same time, in this context of having so much that we live with, so many have so little that they live for, meaning that for so many people, there is very little in their life that they would consider being worthy of their life. And people have causes, they have campaigns, they have interests. But when it comes to laying themselves aside, denying themselves for something greater than themselves, that's a minority. Because for many, self is what they live for. And yet here, as we come again to Luke's gospel, Jesus says to us, self is what we need to deny. Self is what we need to die to. There is something greater to live for. And what Luke is making clear to us is what is greater is Jesus. Well, What is worthy is Jesus. The question is, do you and I consider him to be worthy? And are we willing to lay our lives aside for the sake of him? And what he has said to us clearly is if we're not willing to do that, we can gain the whole world. But we lose ourselves. And so the challenge for us as we continue to walk through the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel is to consider what it means to truly deny ourselves, to truly trust in Christ. And it really comes back to these fundamental questions of who is Jesus and what did he do and what is our response? And so we're going to walk through those now as we look to this transfiguration passage with that first question that we've asked over and over again. And we'll continue to ask, who is Jesus? Number one, who is Jesus? And the answer, of course, is he's Lord. Uh, He's the long-awaited Messiah. We've seen here uh, the disciples making this confession. We've seen them already. Before Jesus says to them, you have to deny yourself and die die to yourself and follow me, we've seen them already begin to do these things. Here in this passage, we have mentioned Peter, James, and John. The way these men have come together in their lives before the call of Jesus is they were all fishermen. They were all in business together. James and John brothers, Peter and Andrew brothers, they they had a, a business together, they fished together, they likely grew up together. But now life has radically changed, and they have interacted with Jesus, the Messiah, and Jesus has called them not to be fishermen, Fishermen in the sense they were before, but now to be fishers of men. And they have answered that call and heeded that call. And yet, even in doing that, there seems to be this constant course of correction in their lives, especially with Peter. <laughs> Peter's looking to Jesus as the Messiah, believes the kingdom is coming now. When Jesus indicates he's going to die, Peter rebukes Jesus. And in turn, Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter. Help him see he's not understanding what is to come. And so now we will see in Luke's gospel account more and more Jesus speaking of his death. And yet there still seems to be confusion and we see some here among the disciples. And so let's pick up again verse 28, as I've read already, that the timing here is this is about eight days later. About it's about a week has passed since the events we just looked at, and the events we are looking at now. And at this point, Jesus has gone up on a mountain to pray, and he has brought with him Peter and John and James. And as he is praying, the disciples are sleeping. <laughs> this isn't the first time, this won't be the last time. That this is a theme here we see in the Gospels that as Jesus pulls aside to pray so often. The disciples are weary and tired, and they fall asleep, in this case a heavy sleep. And as they are sleeping, we see here Moses and Elijah coming and talking with Jesus. Six men that Luke tells us about here. The three, along with Jesus, four that we would expect to see— you know, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to be there. We expect them to be there. We, we we know about them. They're following Jesus at this point. They will follow Jesus in the days to come. Peter, who is so often the spokesman of the disciples, Peter who so often seems to put his foot in his mouth, but Peter who will leave a legacy of faith, who will indeed walk with Jesus to the end of his days, John and James, these brothers, the the sons of thunder, they're known as John, the beloved disciple who Jesus will entrust the care of his mother to, James, the disciple who historically is the first to be martyred for his faith, that they have gone up this mountain, Jesus is praying, they are sleeping. And then we have two that we might not expect to see here, uh, Moses and Elijah. These two great figures of the faith from the Old Testament, historically two that God's people would have uh, looked to and longed for. In fact, there was a teaching uh, among the rabbis that when the end of the age was to come that Moses and Elijah would appear. and you'll recognize up at this point we've already had several references to Elijah appearing because when people are asking about who Jesus is, a number of them are believing that well he's Elijah and Elijah has now appeared. And the reason they're making that connection is because this was a teaching and a belief of so many in that day. That they believe when the end of the age came, when the inauguration of God's kingdom on earth was here, they would see Elijah. Moses and Elijah represent for God's people the law and the prophets. Moses, the great lawgiver, God gave his life through Moses. Elijah, considered to be the greatest of the prophets. But these two men have other commonalities. And for example, there, there's a uniqueness. At the end of both their lives, uh, if you remember Moses' story, you know that he was to lead God's people to the promised land. But because of his sin, he was not not allowed to go into the promised land. But when we read about the the end of his life, uh, there's uniqueness there because God takes him up a mountain where he's able to look and see the land of promise, although he can't go in. And then God's word tells us that he dies and God buries him. <laughs> God's people don't know where he was buried. We don't know where he was buried because the Lord himself buries Moses. Now, that's unique among these men of old. And as well, you likely know the end of Elijah's life and how unique that was, that Elijah never actually died. God took him up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so we, we see a commonality, and not just there, we see a commonality as we consider the significance, as they're on this mountaintop, of, of mountaintop experiences both these men had had. But we have Moses, who goes up the mountain and who fasts and prays for 40 days and 40 nights before the presence of God is made known to him on that mountaintop, and he's given the law to give God's people. We have Elijah, who you may recall is used by God to defeat those 400 and fifty prophets of Baal. And yet from there, out of fear, he he runs and flees for his life. He goes to Mount Horeb, where he too fasts and prays for forty days and forty nights before he hears a word from the Lord. Now these two men of old, who represent the law and the prophets, are now there talking with Jesus, who himself has said in Matthew chapter 5, He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, he came to fulfill them. And now we see in this fulfillment, these men gathered together there at this moment of transfiguration. So six men here, but make no mistake about it, Luke wants our focus to be on one. God wants our focus to be on one, to, to be on Jesus And as fascinating as it would have been to have been Peter or James or John and to witness this event and to see these great men of old appearing in glory, that the focus is the glory of Christ. But for them and for us, it's easy to miss that. And sometimes we read the Old Testament this way. We, we get so fascinated with Elijah and Moses and others that then we think, well, if I could just be more like Moses or be more like Elijah. And yet, if we truly read the Word, we see the shortcomings of these men and the failures of these men and the sin of these men. That The point of God's Word is never to point us to them, to consider them the heroes of Scripture. It's to, through them, point us to Jesus, who is the hero of Scripture. He's the one who does perfectly what they and we fail at. The key person here is Jesus, and that is clear. Luke tells us as we look there to verse twenty-nine, and we see that that as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew says it this way: and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white. As light, Mark writes it this way. He said he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. But when you read these accounts and you consider the gravity of what's taken place here, I think even as these men are inspired through the Holy Spirit to write these things down, there's a sense in which they cannot fully describe what they saw. On a much lesser scale, some of you ha- have seen natural wonders of the world. <laughs> Some of you have traveled across the United States and you've seen these great sites and national parks. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but everyone I've talked to who's been to the Grand Canyon and sought to show me pictures of the Grand Canyon has all said the same thing. Well, well, pictures don't do it justice. You have to be there. To just try to take it all in. And I've been places like that where pictures don't do it justice and words don't do it justice. You have to be there and see it to really take it all in. And and multiply that a trillion times. <laughs> and we start to get a glimpse here of I think of what. These men beheld and, and what they would share with others, and what God, through the inspiration of His Holy Spirit, is saying to us this morning. They, they could not fully describe the glory of Jesus. And so this isn't just some you know wardrobe change and a passion play. Where you know, Jesus, well, you know, his clothes were so dirty and, and, and now they're clean. There's a, a radiance And a glory here. That there's an awe-inspiring significance here. That the kingdom of God is here. And now Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah. And I think we're getting a glimpse here of Jesus, again, as the greater and more glorious Moses and Elijah. Moses, who... God called to lead the people out of their slavery and captivity to take them to the land of promise. Moses, who fell short and sinned, and so while he did lead God, he wasn't even allowed to go into that land. In fact, God's word indicates to us that he dies prematurely. In Exodus 34, we read, his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. So Moses didn't get to finish his race. His life's cut off because of his his disobedience. But here we have Jesus, who, who is fully obedient, fully trusting God's word, never falters, never fails, never sins. And he indeed leads his people, leads us into the land of promise. I mean, think of the picture the writer of Hebrews gets us of Jesus as the anchor of our faith, that he has gone ahead of us, that that he dwells in the heavenlies now at the right hand of the Father. He is our anchor, and that anchor doesn't come loose, that the storm comes, the winds are strong, the waves are tall, we feel like we're going to sink, but the anchor holds true. He secures us. He's gone before us. Our hope is in him that one day where he is, we too will be. We will share in a glory like his even, God's word says. You see a picture of it here, don't you? Moses and Elijah are glorious. Why? They are sharing in the glory of Jesus. That they have passed over to the other side of eternity. Where they are, we will one day be and we will be in this glory as well. Elijah, this great prophet of God, considered the greatest prophet of God, that, that, that pinnacle moment where God defeats and wipes out these 450 prophets of Baal, and yet Elijah then runs in fear. A sentence is put out, a bounty on him. Jezebel wants him to die. He runs, he hides. And yet there God speaks to him. And here we have Jesus who's not running from death. He is walking to it. He is going intently to the cross here. The focus here is on Jesus. And the focus here is on what Jesus was about to do. Which brings us to that next question. Number two, what did Jesus do? And Notice again what we read there in verse 30. These two men who are talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. There's an intentionality here, there's a mission here. And just a side note, and I won't go deep on this, but I think it's worthy of of you going and considering more later. Moses, who failed. (laughs) Elijah who failed there's no failures in heaven and in in eternity in glory God sends these men who had fallen short and he's still using them for his mission he sends them to go and to talk with his son that this is not in the same way that we will see uh, for example, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, the angel Gabriel being sent to make a, a proclamation and announcement to Zechariah and to Mary to tell them something they did not know, that they are not messengers in that sense of telling Jesus something he does not know. The, the scripture says they're talking with him, but they're talking about things he already knows about, he's already spoken about. And so I think the sense here is more that there's a there's a counseling and a comfort He's being ministered to. He is ministering to them. This is one of those times I wish Peter, James, or John had been awake and written down what was said. But they don't know and we don't know other than there's a conversation going on here about what is to come. Verse 31, they spoke of his departure. This is speaking of what was to come of his death. We, we speak today of death in this way at times, you know, that the dearly departed, those who have gone, they have passed, that the word used here for departure is exodus, <laughs> those who have exited. And yet you can't help but make the connection that you've got Moses here talking with Jesus, Moses, who God uses to lead his people through the Exodus, talking to the greater Moses who will lead his people to the great Exodus, the one who goes before us, who leads us to the land of promise. They're speaking to him about these things, which, verse 31, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to die, and yet through his death there would be accomplishment. You think of death in our terms and how we speak of death, and we 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 don't normally reference accomplishment with death, we reference accomplishment with life. And so, you know, go go read the paper today, read the obituary section and and you will see, you know, so-and-so uh, passed away, departed, so-and-so, here's all the things they accomplished, and now they've passed. And yet here we have something radically different, because it is through his very death that Jesus was about to accomplish that which allows us to gather today into worship. And, and while this might seem like a A beating drum at times. It's a beating drum we need to beat. We should never get over preaching to one another the significance of the death of Jesus Christ and what his death has accomplished for you and I. We should never graduate from reminding one another of the great truths of God's word that teach us and remind us and beat the drum that we might understand that we all have sinned, that like Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John and billions of others, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as much as we say that, We need to be reminded of it, because when we sin, our temptation is not to think about our sin in reference to the glory of God. Our temptation is to think about our sin in reference to our humanity. I can't believe I did this again, but you know, what do you do? We're only human, you know, uh, I can't believe I, I lost my temper again, or I got anxious again, or I got worried again, or I got so stirred up by this again. I, I can't believe I did that. But you know, I, I, I did better than a lot of people do. But friend, when, when was the last time when when in your sin, you wage your sin against the glory of God and the majesty of God? Because when we see in the Scripture the glory of God and the majesty of God appearing before sinful man, the immediate response is not for men and women to start explaining themselves or uh, trying to somehow make their sin lighter than it was or excuse it in any way. They fall to the ground and they fear they're going to die. And there's a weight there to sin. And all of us have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. We don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. We don't deserve to ever witness the majesty that is displayed here in this passage. But God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Jesus died. And here's Moses and Elijah. That's what they're talking about. That's the conversation. He is going to Jerusalem. He is departing. He is leading this exodus. And he will accomplish something through his death. And what is it he accomplishes? He accomplishes life. Eternal life. So that this weight and this burden of our sin suddenly is lifted up on the cross of Jesus as He takes that weight on Himself and He dies in our place that we might have life. That do you savor this truth when you sin? Are you just do you just bow to try harder and completely ignore? what's put before us this morning. Jesus is going to Jerusalem with intention. He is not going out of compulsion. He is not having something taken from him. He is going intentionally. He is giving intentionally. He is laying down his life intentionally so that we might receive life. Scripture says if we confess him as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. If we look to him and make this confession that Peter made, that Jesus indeed is Lord, we confess him as Lord, meaning we're not trusting in ourselves anymore, in our self-righteousness anymore, in our attempts anymore, in our vows anymore. We're we're trusting completely in him. And so practically what that means is we, we don't come to the Bible and do a Bible study on Moses and challenge one another, how can we be more like Moses? If we identify with anything when we look at Moses, we should identify with his struggles and his sin and his lack of faith. Yeah, I, I, I'm liking that way. But then we look to the greater Moses and the greater Elijah, and we respond in repentance and faith, which leads us to that third and final question. What is your response to Jesus? Again, Peter, John, and James here are sleeping. They're heavy in sleep. you know. I was thinking that if, you know, that the glory of what's taking place in front of them and they're sleeping, that makes me feel better when I preach a mediocre sl- sermon and you're sleeping. Or, or, or when I sleep, I sleep too. I fall asleep when people are preaching to me. But but here, God's plan is not thwarted by our sleep. They, they wake up, and Peter in particular, as he wakes up, Luke's clear. He doesn't even know what was said. He doesn't know the council that was taking place, all that was happening here. He he wakes up and he's excited. Why? Because this is the this is glorious thing he was looking for. You know, Jesus says, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die and I'm gonna raise from the dead. And Peter's response is, Well, Jesus, you're confused. That's not how it's gonna happen. May it never be. Because you're gonna have a glorious reign here on earth. And And Peter, like others, what's he looking for? Moses and Elijah to reappear at the coming of the age. And now Peter wakes up, probably thinking he's in some type of dream state for a moment. Then when he comes fully awake, he sees here what? Jesus in his glory. Moses and Elijah there in glory. And what is Peter thinking? It's time for glory. (laughs) Never mind all that nonsense about going and dying. And This is it. The kingdom has come. Our oppressors are going to be cast off. We are going to reign now in this kingdom with Jesus. And so what does he offer to do? Let let me build some dwellings for you right now. But let's commemorate this moment right now. Let's get this kingdom going right now. You'll remember the last time Peter makes this mistake that Jesus rebukes him. And this time, when he makes it, the Father rebukes him. The the glory of God through this cloud, it it descends on them. And maybe you've been driving one morning when there was a, a thick fog and and you were driving through a relatively clear area and, you, you know, there were fog warnings. You didn't see any fog and everything seemed fine. And then you you start to go down a, a hill into a little valley area. And then all of a sudden you're right in the thickness of it and you can't see five feet in front of you. You know, Peter and James and John going from observing the glory of Jesus and the glory of Elijah and Moses as they're departing to they literally, it would seem, can't see their hand in front of their face. But but this isn't just a fog, (laughs) that this isn't just a weather phenomenon, that this is the presence of God, that this is the presence of God that descended on that mountaintop when Moses received the law, that this was the presence of God that went before God's people in the Exodus, and now the presence of God is there, and they are overwhelmed by it. In Matthew's account, Matthew 17, he writes it this way, that that when this happens and when they hear the voice of God, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. What were they terrified of? They they hear God. Luke tells us, God here says to them what, what he said at the baptism of Jesus, except he adds this statement, listen to him. Listen to him. We I mean, just consider the significance of that. What has he said? He has described already what is to come. What are they struggling with? They're struggling to believe that. God says, listen, listen to him. So they fall on their faces. They're terrified. But Matthew says, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only that they're overwhelmed by fear of what's taking place they have fallen to the ground their eyes are closed that I mean I mean when do you close your eyes when you just can't wait for something to end you're so overwhelmed by it and in this moment they're terrified. Our daughter, Caroline, is going through a difficult summer, and that puts it lightly. And so in an attempt to do anything and everything we could and can to lift the difficulty, I have promised everything, more than I will ever make, more than I could ever attain. But fortunately for me, her biggest dream in life is not to go on a European tour. She wants to go to Orlando to a theme park, to Universal. And so we can accomplish that. God did not build me for roller coasters. I've tried. It doesn't work. And there was an experience years ago, and I will spare you the details, but if I could have fallen on the ground with my eyes closed, I would. I wanted the ground to fall on. And I just closed my eyes, and I was praying as hard as I've ever prayed. I just wanted it to end as quick as it could end, that roller coaster realistically was probably 90 seconds. It felt like 90 minutes. I got off of it. There were a group of tourists gathered on a bench. I literally collapsed on one of them. They got up quickly. If you want to bench to yourself, just fall on it. I just laid there for like 30 minutes. Really, I'm not embellishing this. You can ask my family about it. Because I experienced something that I considered to be terrifying and it overwhelmed me to the point that I closed my eyes and I just wanted it to end. It was a roller coaster. These men experienced something so much weightier, so much greater, so much grander, so, so much more fear. And they just fall to the ground and they consider themselves, I believe, as good as dead because they're experiencing the glory and the weight of God, the Father, and all his majesty. And and I can only imagine for Peter, who, who very recently has already been rebuked over these same things, and now the Father is rebuking, and the Father's saying, just listen to him. And then you take the weight of that with the grace of what follows. Jesus touches them. And everything's gone. That there's no more fear, there's no more weight, there's no more anxiety. That they just rise. And and Matthew says they they have no fear at this point. Because they have Jesus. And that's all you need today. You, you just need Jesus. And, and we say that sometimes, and it's it's trite and it's casual, and all you need is Jesus. But friends, all you need is Jesus. Is he worth it today? Is he worth your life? Yeah. Is he worth my life? He is. He says, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? God says, listen to me. Are you listening to him this morning? Am I listening to him this morning? Because this is what he has said to us. The question is how will we respond? Will we repent and believe, or will we stay lost in our sin and our unbelief? There are no other options. Will we trust in him or trust in ourselves? There is no middle ground. We have so much, we live for so little. But it doesn't have to be that way if we will put our trust in him. And I pray that you will. If you would stand together and pray with me today.